Welcome back to part two of our Hateful Eight episode. In part one, we talked with Bob Harvey from Panavision and Michael Broderson from Photochem about Ultra Panavision, the photochemical process, and what it's like working with Quentin Tarantino. If you missed it, you should definitely check it out. In this episode, we'll be talking about the immense effort that it took to resurrect 70 millimeter projection in theaters across the country. We'll be talking with Chapin Cutler from Boston Light and Sound, as well as Dan Kofer from the Alamo Drafthouse. Let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with them. With us on the podcast today is Chapin Cutler, the president of Boston Light and Sound and the head project manager for the Hateful Eight Project and bringing 70 millimeter to theaters across the country. Chapin, thank you so much for joining us. It's indeed my pleasure. So we want to start off a little bit with with Boston Light and Sound. Um, one of the things that we've talked about with some of the other contributors to this podcast is that, it, you know, it takes a village to bring a movie to life. It takes a lot of expertise, a lot of skills from a lot of different companies. So could, could you tell our audience a little bit about Boston Light and Sound, how long you've been in operation, kind of what the, the focus of the company is? Uh, well, we started, my business partner and I, uh, Larry Shaw, uh, started our company in 1977 uh, and we've been in business ever since, so we're approaching our 40th year. Larry and I were both union projectionists in Boston. We were both uh, officers in the Boston Moving Picture Machine Operators Union, and we both saw where the industry was going. In those days, uh, xenon was uh, xenon lamp sources, light sources, and movie theaters uh, had become kind of the norm and uh, the industry was moving towards multiplexes. Larry and I came from the old school days of when working as a projectionist was a craft, and what we did was we pooled our interests, the junk that we had accumulated, and basically decided to take the craft that we knew and loved so much and carry it to an extreme. And that is what, that's what we have done with our business since, um, since we started. Have you maintained the same kind of relationship with your clients, or has it morphed throughout the years? We have clients uh, that we're still working with that uh, we met in the uh, in the late 70s. For example, uh, you know, the first uh, we did we started by do, to do dailies for film production, shooting on location, uh, and the first movie that we did was The Brinks Job with Billy Friedkin as the director. We've bumped into Billy a couple of times at the TCM Film Festival the last couple of years, and uh, he remembers us, and of course we remember him. We did, uh, for example, the 1981 roadshow of Napoleon, the 1927 Abo Gantz classic that had its grand premiere here in the U.S. at Radio City Music Hall on January 25th, 1981. And we still handle those performances if and when they occur right up to and including the one that was done in Oakland about three years ago. We have many clients that we've we've had for somewhere around 30 years. Universal Pictures is one. Uh, Disney is another one. And... Um, so and of, and of course there are local there are local places here in Boston where we uh, have maintained a relationship and uh, continue to enjoy that. Great, excellent. At what stage in the Hateful Eight project were you guys brought in? Could you talk a little bit about your role in, in uh, uh, I mean, resurrecting seventy millimeter in theaters across the country um, has got to have been a challenge. So so when were you involved? Kind of how did it start? Well. 
we became involved partially and first off because among other roles that I, uh, I, I carry working for Boston Light and Sound or as one of the owners of Boston Light and Sound, um, I've been the technical director for the Telluride Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado for almost 30 years now. So when it was determined that The Hateful Eight was going to film in Telluride during the winter, I was initially contacted by uh, Shannon McIntosh, one of the producers, uh, to discuss providing them with a 70-millimeter dailies room on location. Uh, We happened to have a high-quality electronic 70-millimeter projector, which we were uh, able to provide, and we set that up in what is uh, referred to in Telluride uh, terms as the Mason's Hall Cinema, and we set it up partially so that they could do dailies, but as Quentin is also an aficionado of running film, we were able to leave the regular you know, film festival 35-millimeter projection system in place so that they could run movies on their off days. After having several conversations with Shannon and in making this, this arrangement, uh, she decided to introduce us to the Weinstein Company, who at that point had made a commitment to do this 100 screen release of 70 millimeter of the hateful eight in 70 millimeter ultra panavision and so i went out and met them and they decided we were the people to handle this job so i walked out the door with a handshake agreement in november of last year so how do you start a project like that where did Um, you begin you start by going to the closest bar uh, and then uh, <laughs> then you uh, you know sort of no um, as a teetotaler that doesn't work for me no I went and sat in my car and vibrated for a while and said now why did I do that um, but then you know I came back and I sat down with my partner and and our other our other uh, project managers and said okay here we go we got to put this together and they sort of looked at me like I was crazy and then we pulled together and tried to figure out how we were going to put this all put make this all happen fortunately shortly thereafter interstellar had its 70 millimeter run so we immediately sent somebody around to all of those locations to take a look and see how the 70 millimeter prints were standing up how they were being handled those particular facilities although the original intention was and remains on the part of the Weinstein Company that this be a wider release in more traditional, higher market venues than just playing it in theaters that were already set up. And once we got that information, we sort of just started figuring out how we were going to make it happen and basically hit the ground running the beginning of January. Oh, so what was your scope of work? Was it find out how many theaters you can possibly get, or what? We were we were given a preliminary list of theaters of the type and kind where they would want to play this movie. We then set about to survey somewhere around forty of them which we were then able to combine with the ones that we had surveyed for Interstellar, and we used those as the basis for what we needed to 
or what we could calculate we needed for things like lenses for particular screen sizes and projection distances uh, because those all had to be ordered about four months out. So we had to do some kind of predictive checking, and that's what we did. So that's that was one of the first things we had to do. The second was, of course, that we were charged with uh, coming up with enough equipment to equip 100 screens. And so we set about to figure out what we would need to provide to do that, which was, you know, the projector, the lamp house, the bulbs, the platter, the you know, number of splicers, the uh, types and sizes of lenses, the kind of sound transport we were going to need, what we were going to need for film cleaners, what we were going to, I mean, basically we put together a whole list and we didn't limit ourselves to 100 theaters because we had to, we have to be prepared for failures or you know mechanical uh things that happen because you know it, it's like your car you know you're driving down the highway and all of a sudden it decides it's not going to run you don't know why but right. you know that it's an electromechanical device and it will break down there is nothing you can do to keep it from breaking down because right. It's an imperfect device. Well, and, and just if, not to interrupt, but just so our audience understands, you can't, nobody's producing new projectors at this no. point, right? You can't go and just buy one if you need one. Like, there's no manufacturer out there producing new parts and pieces and projectors, correct? That is correct. The, the 70 millimeter projectors basically went out of production somewhere around the, the turn of the century. So, we uh, all the projectors and all the lamp houses and all the platters and all the bits and parts and pieces with a few exceptions we had to find in the used market most of those and most of what had been out there had been destroyed because when we went through the digital conversion part of the uh, responsibility of the theater owner was to basically trash the projectors so they all ended up in landfills. So not only did we have to find those machines that we needed, we also had to produce an extra 20 in case we needed them in case of failures, as I spoke of earlier, that even brand new projectors uh, fail. And um, our scope became one of finding 100 complete systems and putting them together and make them ready to ship out in time for the release, and that was our scope of work. Wow! And you did it, right? I mean, it's <laughs> we have done it. Excellent! <laughs> Congratulations! Yep. Congratulations! We um, every uh, we have, uh, as of this particular moment, on December the sixteenth, in the year of our Lord two thousand fifteen, uh, we have shipped out every system that needs to go into the field, all but about. Three of them have been delivered to the theater. As of Saturday the 19th, all but nine will have been installed and tested and ready to go. And those nine, because of the configuration of the theaters, are not going in until the 22nd of December, but they will be ready to run a show starting you know, Christmas Day. Wow. Awesome. I understand that you offered some amount of training to the theaters that you installed these in. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, we are offering training. We're also providing, uh, you know, uh, technical supervision uh, for opening weekend um, and sending people in to make sure that the prints get loaded onto the device that feeds the film into the projector and make sure everything is working properly. Uh, One of our tasks has been that in the past, movies were shipped in on reels and each reel would hold somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes worth of film. In order to simplify this in terms of getting them, getting the prints in the field, we set up basically, uh, we set up a facility in Valencia, California, in which the prints, as they come out of the laboratory at Photochem, they're shipped off to our facility and we, where we have uh, 12 platters set up and six editors or re-editors, if you want to call them that, that are assembling all of the prints. We've developed some oversized reels and cases that allow us to take an entire print, uh, put it on one reel, ship it out to the theater so that's the way it's received, and uh, that reduces the the need to have people who know how to put reels of film together for platter. It also means that we can ultrasonically splice, uh, do all the splices. So in essence, we're sending out one 22,000-foot reel of film that has no splices in it, for all intents and purposes. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, you started out as a projectionist and and it was a craft. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about, because I mean, I'm assuming at this point with digital projection having uh, taken the role it has, that a lot of that, that knowledge that was there for projectionists has been lost. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like when you started in the craft of projection? Well, in, in those days, you know, we basically had one projectionist per theater. In the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, they were licensed by the Department of Public Safety, and the projectionist was the only licensed person within a theater so to a very large extent the projectionist had the responsibility for the safety of people that are in you know three four five thousand seat theaters everything was manual uh which meant that a normal feature which would be six reels long was run by an operator who threaded the projector every 20 minutes and made a real change so that people saw a continuous performance they were responsible for the maintenance and the upkeep of the equipment and for running the shows on a high-quality and professional basis. We protected the print and uh, as certainly as best we could, and at least in, in the case of the theaters we work, I worked in, sometimes we would get six months out of a print and it was just as new going out the door as when it came in. One of the reasons people talked about the digital conversion was that the prints got scratched and dirty and all of that stuff, and that's because of the way the prints were handled, and uh, both in mechanically as well as in projection booths, where you had one person trying to run 12 theaters at the same time. There was no print protection going on, but it really, it really was a craft. We, you know, the equipment that we had was was either installed or built in the 30s and 40s uh, or designed in the 30s and 40s even if it was brand new in the 60s so there there was a lot to do in order to keep a movie theater running with digital you don't 
really even need to have anybody in the projection booth. And, uh, you know, I would say, you know, digital projectors have faults of their own, which we can talk about another time if you want to. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, was a, it was a very different time. I'm sure. We've talked to a lot of people about this hateful eight, and we've talked about the projection and the projector and the screen, but not as much about the audio component. Can you tell me a little bit about the complexities that you faced with getting the sound from this film into the theaters? Well, every theater we're going into has a sound system, and the sound systems are configured to the in- an industry standard which is nominally defined as either a 5.1 audio or a 7.1 audio system. And the Hateful Eight is a 5.1 audio playback. And in, in the case of what we call stereo in movie theaters, instead of the way it is at home, there are three sets of loudspeakers uh, behind the screen, which are left, center, and right, and that accounts for numbers one, two, and three. Four and five are the surround speakers, one on the left side, one on the right side. So that accounts for five of the channels. And then the point one refers to a subwoofer, which is used for bass enhancement for, you know, gunshots and hooves of horses and, you know, explosions and things like that. The track uh, in the good old days used to be a magnetic track which has gone into disuse because of environmental issues in particular and so this particular soundtrack is being played back in the DTS process uh, which is a system that was developed for the release of Jurassic Park 2 back in the uh, in the 80s and what it basically is is that it's a hard drive that you ingest the audio track into digitally and there is a time code which is recorded and printed onto each film print so the hard drive follows in step frame by frame you know inch by inch The audio follows the picture and is then played back into a cinema processor, which then distributes the 5.1 audio to each of the appropriate speakers. Now, part of our problem was, once again, when film stopped being used as a regular distribution format, so did the manufacturer of DTS processors. We found uh, we were able to go back to the original manufacturer who made about 30 new ones for us, but we had to track down another 90 or 100, which we brought in here, took apart, had them rebuilt, put in new drives, replace components as needed, basically put them back together again and uh, uh, as basically remanufactured units, and that's what we're putting out in the field. Wow. Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> well, it, it is, but, you know, the other part of it is that in order for us to do this project, my partner Larry, who I mentioned earlier, basically had to take on the role of, you know, designer and integrator of putting this system together. And as a part of that, we had to go into the manufacturing business, which we've never been in, and design and manufacture about 125 different parts. 
of which we needed anywhere from two to 5,000. And so not only were we hunting around the country to find hulks of broken down and destroyed old 70 millimeter projectors, but in order to remanufacture them, which meant for us stripping them down to the mainframe, replacing gears, replacing bearings, replacing broken parts, replacing things that were missing, we basically had to manufacture whatever we couldn't find in the field. And that was also a big part of what we had to do. We now have a pretty good stockpile of parts to repair the three different kinds of projectors that we've put together for this release. Wow. So let's talk about the final product. Have you seen the film? Yes. And you saw it projected in 70 millimeter? Of course. And I've actually seen it both ways. And what do you think? I would tell you that I went into this wondering why in the world somebody would make a movie that takes place almost completely in a single room. And after I got through seeing this movie, I wondered how it would be possible to make it any other way. It's fantastic. Uh, this, this movie, I mean, part of it is that the warmth that you get from the 70 millimeter image and the fact that, that the details that you would never see in a digital image the use that Quentin makes of this expanded frame. I mean, there's one scene that, in, in particular in which Samuel L. Jackson is kind of in the middle uh, foreground of the image, and one character speaks to him about something, and he's up in the upper left-hand corner. It's like he couldn't get any further out of the frame as possible, but his size and his distance gives a depth of proportion that you couldn't get with any other format. And I'll tell you that this picture is probably the most stunning piece of film I've ever seen in my 50-year career. Wow, that is high praise. It is a statement. It is. Yeah. But, you know, we we played some tricks in order to do our part of it. For example, the lenses that we've had to use have all been overhauled by uh, the manufacturer. We've had the lenses stopped down, which means that that they have a greater depth of focus than most normal projection lenses do, which means that the anomalies you often get in film projection having to do with what happens to the film when uh, when the heat gets to it uh, has much less less effect. The fact that we're going on to uh, into theaters that are seventy five percent silver screens, uh, we're able to use up some light to by making the picture sharper. And so, to a very large extent, there has never been a movie that has been projected with the kind of care and quality that's gone into the equipment. Since we had to overhaul it, we basically removed the, 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 the projectors when they were originally manufactured uh, were convertible between, you know, 35 millimeter and 70 millimeter. We stripped out all the 35 millimeter parts and optimized the projectors for 70 millimeter. When they originally built, they were more optimized for 35 millimeter and compromises made to run 70. These are 70 millimeter projectors, and they show 70 millimeter film the way it should be shown. It's fantastic. It sounds like, it, you know, to, to all of our audience out there, and we've said this now, I think, at the end of every segment, is uh, 
if you can get to it in 70 millimeter, go see it in 70 millimeter. The the lists are out there now on the on the uh, on the web. You can find the official list of theaters. It sounds like it's the only way to see it. I would tell you it's the only way to see it, which is not to say necessarily that the DCP is bad, but I will tell you it doesn't look like this. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so get out there, see The Hateful Eight. If you can see it in 70, see it there. And if not, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic movie no matter how you can, you can get to it. Absolutely. Um, Chapin, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure, and hopefully uh, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. You bet. So. Thank, thank you. you so much. Take care. Bye. One of the great things about Hateful Eight is that it's being projected on film and 70 millimeter, which is not something that happens often these days. So here to talk with us about the excitement and the challenges of projecting in 70mm is Dan from the Alamo Draft House. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with Dan. So joining us for this segment is Dan Kofer from the Alamo Draft House. Hello, Dan. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on the show. Dan is here to talk about projection. We, we've covered everything from origination through the photochemical process and kind of the last step in uh, bringing a movie like The Hateful Eight to life is actually projecting it in a theater. And, you know, projecting on film isn't something that happens everywhere anymore. So we wanted to bring in some specialists. So we have Dan with us. And uh, so, Dan, could you tell our audience a little bit about, about your role at the Alamo Draft House? Well, I'm a head projectionist for all of our theaters in the Austin market, which is uh, our largest market in the U.S. We have five theaters there, and so I oversee all projection and AV-related affairs for the Austin market. Nice. So so for the Alamo Draft House, uh, could you actually tell our audience a little bit about uh, about what it is and what makes the theater so special? Like out here in Rochester, uh, we don't have an Alamo Draft House. I would love one to come here if you could work that out somehow. <laughs> I'll um, put in a word for you. Thank Thanks. you. <laughs> Thanks. But could you tell our audience a little bit about the Alamo Draft House and well, what makes it? Well, we'd like to refer to ourselves as the, the movie theater for movie lovers. We are committed to providing the best on-screen presentation as well as uh, creative programming and uh, not to mention a uh, full uh, kitchen and bar, so you can dine in and enjoy drinks in the theater during the movie. That doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, Megan was actually just fist-pumping over here (laughs) about when you said the word bar, so that sounds lovely. Um, And you guys also are renowned for really creative programming, correct? Yeah, yeah, we try to do more than just run your average uh, blockbusters, so we'll do uh, specialty screenings and sing-alongs and quote-alongs, a lot of classic cinemas, and uh, we, we definitely have a focus on uh, maintaining the the, uh, the dying film formats. Uh, so we run 35 millimeter at a lot of our locations on a regular basis. Um, we even run VHS for occasions uh, when that content isn't available in any other format. Projecting on film, like I, I kind of teed that up a little bit in the beginning with, but that isn't something that a lot of theater chains do anymore. Most theaters project digitally. What is it about projecting on film? Why you guys have really worked hard to continue to do so? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, part of it is simply being able to show films that aren't available in the DCB format or even in Blu-rays. Uh, we maintain a film archive called the American Genre Film Archive, or AGFA for short, where we have uh, probably 5,000 films in our archive in Austin, and many of those they may be the only prints of those movies that exist in the entire world, and the only way to watch them is to use essentially the prints that we have. And so we're able to put things on screen in that format that we simply cannot do and nobody else can do in another format. That's really cool. Yeah. And also just film is cool. 
even watching an old beat up pink scratched print of some movie that you've never seen before has a very just sort of I don't know it's an enlightening experience and considering that um, it's not not done everywhere are you seeing more of a popularity are people wanting that asking for that um, I think it's a growing demand. We've been installing 35 millimeter at all uh, many of the locations that we've been opening around the country and uh, trying to help build a sort of groundswell of support for 35 millimeter. And we've been getting very good reaction with it. There are people who will come to see movies simply because of the format. Even if they've seen that movie a hundred times before, the opportunity to see it on film, 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter, is a big deal to a lot of people. Yeah, that's awesome. So that kind of leads us to the Hateful Eight, which uh, has been a really a, a huge project in, in in a way resurrecting technology that hasn't been used in a number of years. Starting with Ultra Panavision, and now with the idea of a of a roadshow, which which hasn't been done with a big Hollywood movie in quite a while. Could you talk a little bit about? Are you you guys are going to be one of the roadshow theaters, correct? Yes, absolutely. And could you talk a little bit about the challenges of uh, like what what needs to be done to you know, for an average theater owner for your for yourselves to bring seventy millimeter in and project? Well, we already have a little bit of advantage in in already having seventy millimeter installed. Uh, we brought it in. I was it two or three years ago, shortly before the master came out on seventy millimeter, and we wanted to present that properly. And it also gave us the opportunity to start doing series of big screen classics or not-quite-so-classic 70-millimeter uh, films. So we're prepared for it, but in order to run the super, the, the Ultra Panavision, because it's anamorphic, we need to have anamorphic adapters, and because the uh, aspect ratio is wider than your normal scope uh, aspect ratio, we need to bring in different lenses. And another advantage we have is all that we've already done this once before, not too long ago, we ran It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which is in the same format. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in that case, we didn't know the format of the print we were getting. We thought it was just a standard 70 millimeter until we got it out of the cans and looked at it and realized it was anamorphic. So we uh, went to our friends at uh, Boston Light and Sound to uh, get the lenses we needed to run that properly, and it looked amazing. It was quite fantastic. So. We're already fairly well prepared, but I understand most of the locations running 70 millimeter for this engagement are having the projectors installed specifically for it. Right. I know some of the hope and the idea of of, uh, having all these new places who, unlike you guys, didn't have the equipment, but a lot of the equipment, um, it's not like there's anybody making new 70 millimeter projectors, correct? Not as far as I know. So... 70 millimeter projectors are kind of at a premium right now. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine they're so. a hot item. The eBay business is very strong on those. <laughs> so, could you tell our audience a little bit? Because we have, we're going to have a pretty broad audience for the Kodakery. So, could you explain to our audience a little bit what uh, anamorphic lenses mean? Oh well, in order to uh, get the widescreen effect, the image on the film itself is is squeezed horizontally, and the uh, anamorphic lens unsqueezes it to project it as a super widescreen image. Nice. And that requires a special anamorphic lens to do. And what about the projectionists? I would imagine there's not a ton of people that know how to do this remaining. Is that true? Or people um, trained? There are sure I'm sure are a lot of guys out there who yeah. know how to do this, but they may not be active in the job anymore. 
after the digital revolution, a lot of great projectionists uh, were unfortunately thrown out of work or forced into other lines of work. And so it may be difficult to find trained professionals who know how to do this and uh, can Mm -hmm. get their skills back up in time. The fact that these installations are going back in, it only makes it easier to do more shows like this in the future. Yeah. And uh, to get some of the old projectionists back, that kind of makes me happy. Yeah. Nice, nice. So so for, for you guys, uh, which theater is going to be in the Roadshow, and when can folks uh, come and take part? Well, it's going to be the Alamo Drafthouse Ritz in Austin. That's our 70-millimeter house, and the uh, film opens on Christmas Day. Nice. And how the, how long will it run in 70-millimeter? We are, I believe, committed to run strictly 70-millimeter until the digital opening in January. Excellent. That's going to be a really exciting opportunity. I, I, and anybody out there, especially if you've, you've gone through kind of all of the, the parts of this, go see it on 70 millimeter if you can. I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be an experience. And if you're in Austin, it sounds like you have a great outlet to go check it out. Yeah, come on down. And to yep. be quite honest, 70 millimeter makes everything look better. <laughs> I mean, it, it, this could be the greatest movie in the world, but if you're not seeing it on 70, you're not seeing it the best way you can. Yeah. Yep, yep. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so so thank you so much for joining us, Dan. We appreciate talking about the Elmo Draft House and all of your commitment to film and projecting on film. And uh, we look forward to talking to you guys again in the future. Okay. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, you so much. Okay. See you in Austin someday. You That's bet. Right. Bye. Okay. Bye. It is a great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention. <laughs>